Hello, and welcome to the Political Shadings podcast, sponsored by Somfy. We are coming to you live from the Willard office complex in the Big Wig Media Studios, partnered with our uh, promotional partners from Evergreen Media as well. Uh, I, I tell you, every time I hear that intro music, I can't thank Joshua Espinoza. Terrific enough. music. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. It's like we sound almost professional. Almost professional. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And so we, we let want... him down, I think, with what comes after that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so we want to shout out to Joshua. Uh, it's joshuaespinoza.com. He's a fantastic musician. He was wonderful to work with. Uh, and obviously, he's super talented. So, uh, you know, we, we're, we're lucky to have him. Um, and also, we want to uh, acknowledge the newest member of our podcast team, Jackie Hankard, who's going to talk to us for a moment about our major sponsor, Somfy, and what they do and how they do it. We'll toss it to you, Jackie. Take it away. For over 50 years, Somfy has been pioneering innovative motorization and automated solutions for window coverings and exterior shading products. With comfort, ease of use, security, and sustainability in mind, Somfy's seamless and connected solutions are designed to help people make the move to living spaces impactful for humans and with a reduced impact on nature. Thanks, Jackie. Appreciate that. And so, here we are again. Here we are. Another edition of the Political Shadings Podcast. Episode 3, Revenge I'm... of the Sith or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the this the podcast strikes back. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so <laughs> So here we are, Washington, D.C. Any news lately that's been uh, affecting politics at all? Or? No, no. It's really no? been quiet. I can't quiet. think of anything. No, yeah. So Outstanding. Th- yeah, there's been a few things happening. Not really in D.C. so much. You know. Interesting. Yeah, a couple of um, uh, you know arraignments or indictments and uh, well, what's presidential a, what's debates. Ni- what's 91 felony indictments amongst friends? Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, no impact on, on politics. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're... None whatsoever. Yeah, we're, I guess we're six months or so out from the first... Primaries and caucuses. Good lord! Which I know people are excited about because I it mean, feels like it's been so long since the last election. Um, <laughs> did, did, I feel like we're now in. And I was talking to somebody at a happy hour the other day. Somebody's like, "Oh, it's an off-cycle summer. It's wonderful." I'm like, "Is it? Is it though?" Um, I feel like Iowa, I feel right? like we're still yeah. in the the 2020 election. Like, well, yeah, and, and since we're looking at at least the way things look right now, it'll be a rematch. Um, you know, Biden Trump part. Part do, um, you know. I think yeah, it does feel like uh, you know things never quite end. But yeah, but you know that's of course in the background there, very looming, very heavily in the background. But you know, meanwhile, of course, here in D.C., well, it's pretty quiet these days because it's the depths of August. Congress um, is not in session not until mid September, exactly after Labor Day. But you know, when they come back, they got a lot to do. And I mean, even with the politics, even with the election, and criminal cases and everything else, uh, you know, there's a lot that has to go on. And so, you know, things are going to get kind of busy and kind of crazy. So I've been, and you make, yes. And and so I've been reading a lot about the possibility of a government shutdown. Yeah. What does that mean? Uh, How do we prevent, do we want to prevent it? (laughs) Like, talk, talk to me about where, how we got here. How did we get here? Well, yeah. let's see, about uh, 200 years ago, oh. there was a, no, um, I'll go a little more recent than that. So basically where we're at is that every year, Congress has to provide uh, funding for various federal agencies to keep them open. The Makes government sense. works on a fiscal year, uh, starts October 1st and September 30th. Normally, in the in the way things should work, Congress will pass 12 separate what are called appropriations bills that provide funding for various agencies, get them passed, signed by the president, Everything goes on. Life life goes on as normal. Um, that process really has not happened too often in the last, I don't know, 30 years or so. <laughs> uh, Congress is often late in getting that done, and so they have to pass these temporary stopgap bills. are called continuing, continuing resolutions, resolutions if you want to, if you're playing uh, the federal CR. CR. If you're playing federal bingo, you can check that off your box. Um, and, and, he, and the issue is right now Congress is way behind on getting these bills passed. There's a lot of disagreement. You may recall back in the spring, there was a, a deal on the debt ceiling, which um, where Democrats and Republicans agreed to certain funding levels. Right. And so Speaker McCarthy years. basically said to the administration, yep. we, we agree to these levels for the next four years. The next period of time, yep. So everything should be fine. Everything should be great. Right. And then... Nah, not so much. So the, the, the House Freedom Caucus, which are some of the more, let's say, passionate uh, conservative members, said, no, we don't like those numbers, and we demand deeper, steeper cuts. And... and Speaker McCarthy, who has a very narrow majority, you may recall, 
back in January, it took him 15 votes to become speaker. Uh, it really depends upon the Freedom Caucus for his position uh, agreed to, to, to provide lower spending levels to push forward, which the House is doing. The Senate, meanwhile, which is in Democratic hands, the White House right. uh, said, no, we're keeping to the levels we agreed to back in, in June. So what we're headed towards is a, situ a stalemate where you have the House is saying we want lower numbers. Senate and the White House are saying we want the numbers we agreed to, which are a bit higher. Right. In addition, there's other, and there are other pieces also. The White House is also asking for extra funding for Ukraine, for there, for disaster relief because of uh, the, the tragedy, the terrible thing that happened in Maui because of the, the storms in awful. Southern California. Just awful. They're saying we need some more money for these things, and there's and there are these folks on, on the House side who are saying, well, we don't want to do that. We want to give extra money. Or if we give extra money, we have to take money from someplace else. All of this to, 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 to say is that come September 30th, unless Congress can pass in both chambers and the president signs a continuing resolution to keep government going, it will shut down. So is your sense that Speaker McCarthy wants the shutdown to happen? Or is it placating his quote-unquote, base within Congress, and is looking towards his Democratic colleagues, perhaps, to help him out pass either a CR or a, a full-blown budget. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think Speaker McCarthy wants, wants a shutdown. I think the history has been over the last 25 years that whenever there's been a shutdown, politically, Republicans have taken the blame for that. Right. Happened under Newt Gingrich, happened under Speaker John Boehner, right. um, it, it happened under President Trump. Um, here's the issue is that he has this very narrow majority under the rules he agreed to to become speaker. Any one member of his caucus can call for what's called a motion to vacate the chair, which basically right. means a vote in the House to, to kick the chair out, or the speaker out. Uh, and so he would have to then basically probably rely upon Democrats to get the support. That causes two issues. One, of course, is that you know, a lot of Republicans don't like it when they have to depend upon Democrats to get anything passed. Well, but that's the that's the the game. Like you have a narrow, narrow majority. Well, right. If you can't get if you if you lose five votes as speaker, that's it. On the Republican side, you need to have Democrats to get it passed. Now, the other thing that complicate things is that we're hearing more and more rumblings from House Republicans about uh, the I word uh, impeachment. Uh, there is there's talk about impeaching President Biden. Right. I recently saw a press conference Secretary in which, he, yeah. you know, Spe Speaker McCarthy was like, now we're we're talking about scheduling impeachment proceedings. And one of the reporters asked, on what? Right. And he said, well, we'll let you know. Yeah. So they're trying to play this game a bit where they're saying, well, we need to investigate various things. Right. Um, and the way to do that Hunter is Biden's to Biden's laptop exactly. again. Yeah. Well, Hunter yeah. Biden's laptop. There's stuff Still. relating to whatever. More. I mean, it, it was... Right. Um, and, and so they're trying to play this game, saying, well, we're not looking to impeach the president right now. We need to start the investigation. But the reality is, we know, once you go down that road, you know, the pressure to then take action, especially from the Republican base, which, by the way, many of them don't believe that Biden is the legitimate president. Correct. See the you know, 2020 election aftermath. You know, so, so you have a situation where McCarthy is going to be potentially relying upon or needing the votes in support of Democrats. At the same time, he may be not actively supporting per se, but at least green lighting, acquiescing to a process to impeach the Democratic president. So that's that's where you get kind of a, it's kind of a messy process. And of course, like I said, all this is happening under the, 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 the sh this looming shadow of this election coming up when of course things tend to get more partisan. Right. Uh, you're gonna have a lot of, of, of fighting and, and the parties positioning themselves in the election and yes, playing to their bases and, uh, so, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of things that could happen in the fall, which could be not helpful. A shutdown is not helpful. We know that. Right. Things shut down, national parks close, agencies can't get work done, government contractors can't get paid. Nobody in their right mind wants to see government shut down, but that may be the inevitable outcome unless you can get the votes together to pass a bill to get the government going forward. Well, in the meantime, it, it seems like, you know, the economy is relatively strong. The White House is out it, touting Bidenomics. Bidenomics, yeah, right. Something which initially, you know, Republicans had in you know a couple of years, in the last two years have been using that as a pejorative because inflation was high, gas prices were high, and then right. the and White now House they're decided not. to say, oh well, let's let's turn it around and let's use that. Inflation's as a, as a at three percent. Gas prices are down. Yeah. Uh, is that is that a direct reflection of things like the Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure bill? 
I mean, the inflation probably went down on its own. I mean, we had a pandemic. Everything shut down. Things were Fed raised interest rates. Fed raised interest rates. I mean, I think, you know, presidents have very little impact on inflation either way. So while President Biden, I'm sure, will take credit for lowering inflation because of the Inflation Reduction Act, probably not that much of an impact either way. But he'll take credit for that. And meanwhile, of course, that bill is... You know, putting money out into the street, out literally in some cases in terms of infrastructure, <laughs> right. you know, rebuilding roads, rebuilding bridges, right. uh, water systems. It's, there's 45 or so billion dollars for broadband to, to places that are not served by, by, by Internet. So, I mean, there's a lot of money going out the door, which, you know, as it creates jobs and, and of course, is in some ways a very tangible uh, way of saying, look, you know, hey, we're doing things for you. We're doing things for the, the country. Well, and and that's what politicians do, right? right? Yeah. Now, I remember when the infrastructure bill passed, it was a slightly different situation. The Democrats still had a majority in the House. Right. So the Inflation Reduction Act was passed under a slightly different set of circumstances. Um, you had a whole bunch of conservative Republicans vote against both the infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act. And yet I now see them at home <laughs> taking credit for bringing that funding to their districts. Now, hold on, John. Are you suggesting, <laughs> I want to be very clear here, are you suggesting that politicians might vote against something and they take credit for the benefit? This is why people hate politicians. Right. And, and look, and, and both sides do this. This is not That's a, right. I mean, you know, but certainly, yeah, you see even Speaker McCarthy uh, has taken, announced with press release money that's coming into his district in California. For, for a some, bill he actively lobbied against. Opposed, right. And you might say to yourself, well, how can that be? How can somebody take credit for, you know, this road over here that was funded by a bill they voted against? And right. the reality is, well, you can. It works. I mean, most voters are not that hyper-focused, like us crazy people here in D.C. on these kinds of things. And so you can. Exactly. You can say, hey, look. I got money for this great project. I'm going to make your commute better. I'm going to make the, the, the world better. In the meantime, though, I voted against all that wasteful, horrible spending from, from Washington. And people don't naturally make the connection. They don't connect that that spending puts that bridge right. uh, you know, back into back operation. Back into operation, right, exactly. So, and that's, that's the reality of politics. And, yes, it's one of those things that makes it a little bit frustrating at times. Uh, but it's, 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 it's the way things work. And, and, look, I mean, in some ways... In fact, you know, the ability to, to tout projects in your district is something that politicians have used to get things done. I mean, an example is earmarks, uh, you know, right. the money that members of Congress earmark for projects in their district. Are we allowed to call them earmarks? No, they're called congressionally directed spending now. That's but right. I think in D.C. people just kind of, you know, roll their eyes and say, well, earmarks. But right. you may recall about 10, uh, 10, 20 years ago, there was a big controversy, the bridge to nowhere. Uh, in Alaska, or an Alaska <laughs> senator got money for a bridge from, I think it was from Juneau, perhaps, to some island where nobody was, and big, big scandal, and so he banned earmarks. You know, the, the, the dirty little secret is that earmarks really do help the process move along, because if you say to members of Congress, hey, you, there's money in here, in this bill, for, for something in your district that will benefit your constituents, you're more likely to get them to vote in favor of it, so it does help move things along. Sure. Um, and, and, and they, so they, they came back with earmarks about two years ago, and they put various protections in it, you know, where the projects have to have some sort of connection to federal programs. It has to be, have community support, not just some kind of, not just putting a jacuzzi on somebody's house. It has to be some, you know, kind of public policy. Some benefit, tangible benefit. Tangible benefit to the community. And, and, and so that's, that has continued. And it's something that I think a lot of people feel is a bit un, unseemly, perhaps. But, you know, politics is messy. What's the saying about you know making sausage or watching sausage being made? It's it's not a pretty sight sometimes, but it gets things done. It is not. Unfortunately, people love sausages and continue to eat it. They they absolutely do in all kinds. So, switching gears a little bit, we have a pretty uh, exciting guest in the yeah. studio today. Yeah, uh, Jason Hartke, who is somebody that I think both of us have worked with for. Yeah. Years. More, longer than we care to admit <laughs> at our advanced age. But he's somebody who's been really just a, a leader in, 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 in buildings in, in, you know, for a long time on the energy efficiency yeah. world about helping to make buildings more energy efficient and has since really kind of moved on to um, kind of the idea of healthy buildings. And with the, the pandemic three years ago, with the wildfires we've seen this summer and extreme heat, uh, I think people are really understanding, recognizing that 
have, you know, healthy buildings are not just a nice to have, it's a must have. We have to make sure that the places where, look, we spend 90% of our time in buildings. We're in a building right now, in fact, if you didn't know are that. Are we? We actually are. Um, wow. And making those buildings healthy for the humans who are in them is important. So he's doing great work with this organization called the International Well Building Institute, yeah. which developed a standard, the well standard, so you can measure how buildings are, are doing in terms of different criteria to keep people healthy uh, in them. And so I think it's a great conversation. It's something that is so important for a long time, but it, but it's beginning to really get that kind of attention and recognition from policymakers that, yeah, this is a priority. We have to make our buildings not just energy efficient, uh, not just resilient, but make them healthy for the people who are in them and, and, and understanding what that means and how to do that. Well, let's get right into it. So after the break, we will be bringing in Jason to chat with us about all things uh, building if energy efficiency, green, and health. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. And we're back from the break. That was exciting. That was. It was. And we are here with our guest this month, Mr. Jason Harkey, the Executive Vice President of External Relations for the Well Building Institute. Jason, thanks for being with us. We really appreciate it. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm excited about uh, having a conversation with you all. Outstanding. Outstanding. So let's kick it off. Tell us about what the Well Institute is, and you know, obviously, Andrew and I have a have a idea, but what they do, what your standard is, and and what we, you guys provide to the built environment. Absolutely. Uh, well, the International Well Building Institute is an organization that's been around uh, for uh, a long while. I think we're we we've now hit our. Uh, uh, over 10 years of, of operation. Wow. Uh, and we're great. focused on, yeah, it is. It's, we, we, we've seen a lot of great momentum over those 10 years. Um, you know, we're really focused on healthy buildings and the role that healthy buildings play to not just protect our health, but enhance and promote uh, human health. Um, and, and doing so at the intersection of the built environment. So really focusing in on the evidence and the science that helps drive positive human health outcomes, um, whether it's through design features, whether whether it's through operations and maintenance uh, of the building, or whether it's through policies that might govern um, the, the the building. Um, I'll give you an example there, like green cleaning. We've we've talked a lot about how um, green cleaning gets implemented, and often it's through a policy mechanism by the organization. So again, all of that is is woven into kind of our DNA. We are mission-based organization that is uh, trying to transform the market. And we do so in our kind of theory of market transformation is based on leadership. We think if you can define a roadmap um, for what success looks like in terms of a healthy building, um, and we utilize our well-building standard, which was introduced in 2014 to do that, then folks will gravitate to that leadership model and demonstrate leadership. And again, that helps pull the market and drive the market transformation we're trying to um, we're trying to 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 create. So the, it's, the, so it's a, a merit-based, point-based system like like lead, for instance. It is. It's very similar to lead, um, except that it's exclusively focused on human health and right. has a very right. similar model. Um, ten concept areas. You know, these are these are things that I think a lot of us are are more familiar with these days than we were, you know, maybe uh, back in 2018 or 2019. But it's indoor yeah, oddly enough, health has become an interesting uh, issue to a lot of people. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting <laughs> because yeah, as you said, I think you know when you talk about green or building standards, people think me think lead, which of course is very important, and you have some experience there also. But now in the last three four years, especially. Uh, I think people have gotten firsthand a sense of why healthy buildings are so important. Yeah, for sure. So talk to us about how you got involved. Tell us a little, little bit about you, your journey. You know, the three of us are, are lobbyists in the building industry in Washington, D.C. Tell us how you got here. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's policy and advocacy at the intersection of buildings for the last uh, 20 or so years of Sounds uh, like my the theme of our podcast. That's amazing. <laughs> and then the, our, um, and how we've all interacted and intersected along the years. And it, and it has been really interesting. Um, you know, I started in advocacy at the U S green building council. So I, 
I know LEED and the power of, of, of what they're doing to, to really accelerate green buildings. I, I ran advocacy there um, at all levels of government, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Um, and we were seeing kind of this, this uh, I would say, kind of this advent of new types of policies to accelerate green building. Uh, at the time, there was just maybe a handful of policies at the local level. When, by the time I'd left, I'd been, I was there for just under 10 years. Um, 400 communities plus had, had passed green building policies. Um, we did a lot of great work there. We did a lot in partnership. You know, uh, I came across Andrew when he was at the American Institute of Architects. Yep. Um, a lot of great work together. This was not something that was just one organization, but there was a really great cohort of leading organizations advancing um, these policies because they had such a, a significant impact by reducing the impact of the built environment um, on climate change and, and in other contexts. Uh, I had a chance to, to take a position over at the Department of Energy, uh, where I ran the commercial buildings program. Again, very laser beam focused on driving energy efficiency in the commercial building sector, which is about a fifth of our climate, which represents about a fifth of our climate emissions. Um, that was a great opportunity to kind of really dive into, uh, you know, more policy implementation and market demonstration. Uh, and then from there, I ran the uh, the Alliance to Save Energy, another energy efficiency focused organization, really thinking about ways that, that federal policy can, again, help accelerate energy efficiency opportunities writ large. Um, and again, that was an aw awesome opportunity. And then roughly three years ago, transitioned over here to the, the International Well Building Institute. So, so basically you started uh, at Well Building, I believe, in late 2019 or so, right? And I imagine at I that did. point... You know, take us back then. I mean, what was kind of the the feeling about where healthy buildings as a topic, as a movement, was going to go? Because I imagine it probably changed a little bit uh, soon. <laughs> a couple uh, months soon later. after that, yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, it was a very interesting time, Andrew. You know, it was uh, December 2019. I started. Um, we we were just finishing up a press release that that uh, that well buildings had had kind of exceeded 500 million square feet of real estate. Um, I was devising a kind of an advocacy strategy. I really didn't think there'd be a lot of federal engagement in maybe the first couple of years, maybe, you know, kind of planting the seeds for why healthy buildings were so important. Um, and then March of 2020 came and, and the pandemic hit and a lot of us were thinking about, okay, how do we respond to the pandemic? What are the role? What's the role of buildings in the context of an airborne disease? Um, you know things like ventilation, um, you know filtration, IAQ. These all became kind of, you know, terms that everybody started to become familiar with. Uh, and I think the the thesis that I, that, you know, it was it was a very quick turnaround. But I think healthy buildings went from a nice to have to a must have to an absolute yeah. must have. Yeah, and so. Um, you know, we, we, we've seen since, since that moment, we've seen a tenfold increase in well certified and registered space. Again, we were at 500 million when I came on, we're now just under 5 billion. So it's been a, you know, a, a huge ramp up. And this is a, this is a global demand for healthy buildings, um, that we're seeing. And again, the, the policy I, I would say has kind of followed suit. So again, we've seen the same trajectory of, of increased focus and attention on healthy building policy. And that's been really exciting to kind of, um, you know, to see and also to kind of be part of and be engaged in on a day-to-day -day basis. Awesome. Well, so talk to us then about, you know, when you were at USGBC, obviously that was a pretty heavily focused state and local effort with with a lot of federal on the side. Talk to us about the the well standard and, and how it intersects with the federal government and and what agencies or even the White House, who's really interested in this? And obviously, since the, it, everything changed after the pandemic, and we have things like you mentioned, uh, there, you know, the indoor air quality summit at the White House recently, like what's driving this? Where are we headed at, federal, at the federal level? You know, there was, it was, I would say that there was, it was bifurcated. There was there was kind of like the immediate response uh, to COVID and and the way that the the federal government responded. Again, it it, it spanned two administrations. You had um, 
you know, the Trump administration then transitioned into the Biden administration. Right. Um, it, but a lot of the focus really was on kind of what is the immediate response. And, you know, around like 2021 um, and into 2022, we, we started to get into kind of more of a recovery conversation. And I think that that's where um, folks were able to kind of take a breath and and think about what what does it mean to get stronger in the context of these acute health threats. And I, I got to give a lot of credit to the uh, the Biden COVID-19 response team um, that was situated right there in the West Wing, part of, um, you know, the the core leadership of, of President Biden in the White House. And those folks helped put, I think, healthy buildings and indoor air quality, more specifically, on the national map. They, they wove it into their COVID-19 prevention plan. Um, which came out in uh, early 2021. In, in, uh, at the, nearly the same time, they rolled out a program called the Clean Air and Buildings Challenge, which really wanted to make sure that the federal funding that was coming out um, from some of the, the legislation was, was helping certain sectors, affordable housing, uh, schools, uh, federal buildings, capture these, these huge health opportunities by by being more ambitious on on indoor air quality improvements, um, and again, like you said, you know, John, you know, lo and behold, and this was this was such a uh, uh, exciting but surprising uh, moment when the White House hosted the first ever indoor air quality summit um, and bringing experts from around the country to say, okay, here's here's what this this can do for us. Here's how it has incredible public health opportunity. But then, okay, now what do we do? And so, um, it again, it put the agenda on the map and helped all the stakeholders rally around um, the different levers that they can pull to to help drive the movement. And that, that's a big, big deal. The old the quick old line, you know, um, somebody said, you know, where the light shines makes a difference. You know, it's the old bully pulpit one. And the White House has a pretty big light. So when they shine a light on an issue, that can make a big, big difference. And it has over the last, I'd say, uh, two plus years. That's great. Yeah, and obviously having that federal focus is great. But also, as, as John, you know, said, it, it it's something that has to go to the state level and local level. I mean, just this week we heard that a school district in Kentucky had to shut down schools because there was an outbreak of COVID. I think COVID flu and strep, kind of a perfect storm, and they had to, <laughs> you know, shut it down. And obviously, we're all kind of in this post-pandemic mindset, but these contagious illnesses are out there. Right. Not um, just COVID. Right. Not just COVID, more than right, a number of things. Uh, and so, you know, how, how do you see kind of the reaction to all this? And at this, at the local level, are you seeing this kind of interest in sustaining kind of the work towards making buildings, schools, hospitals, apartments, everything else healthy? I am. And the, the policy space has been, uh, has been fairly consistent there. Um, you know, early on, the U.S. Conference of Mayors, I think, put a, uh, a stake in the ground and, and had a healthy building uh, resolution that was passed during one of their meetings that really said, hey, look, we need to think about healthy buildings for the future um, in the context of COVID-19, certainly, but also um, as we as we move forward, there was another resol similar resolution that was really more about um, getting ahead of future health threats in 2022, again, you know, doubling down on healthy building strategies and solutions. And then also, and I think this was, you know, this is similar to kind of how lead, um, you know, proliferated in the, particularly around, you know, among public buildings, right. is there was a call to to think about municipal buildings as an opportunity to lead for, for cities to lead by example. Right. Um, and we've, we've now seen that. So, we've you know, Miami was the first city in the country to to adopt the well health safety rating across a portfolio of municipal buildings. New Jersey City um, was earlier this year and, and within the last, I think the last month, Oklahoma City was a third city. Um, and then there's about another uh, dozen and a half or so cities that have used the well building standard for, for public buildings. That's a great sign because it shows that they're, they're not just saying, hey, we need to do this and from a policy standpoint, but they're matching it with action um, and those the, those two are running concurrently. Um, but the National League of Cities has a formal partnership with us where they're really focused in on, on kind of how do we help cities advance healthy places and he healthy spaces. 
Um, you know, the there, there's been other, I think, local action at the at the state level. Um, cities have really embraced. Well, the last thing I'll say is I think cities have really embraced what I think is what they do best, which is be laboratories for innovation. And they are certainly acting as laboratories of innovation as it relates to, to healthy buildings. Um, schools is a is another public sector that I think is super, super important. Um, it, it's a little different because there's there's so many issues that schools have had. They've got a ton of funding. I think a lot of that has been focused on um, helping improve indoor air quality and other healthy building strategies. But a lot of schools have suffered, um, you know, from from very, you know, inadequate funding for a lot of years. And I, you know, Andrew, I know you did a lot of advocacy work focused on schools. Um, we we supported the the latest state of our schools report of 2021. I don't know if you all are familiar with that report, but it found that we're underinvesting in our schools to the tune our school facilities specifically to the tune of $85 billion a year. So we're not just talking about kind of indoor air quality things. We're talking about roofs that are leaking. We're talking about bathrooms that don't work. So schools have, I think, much more, um, you know, almost deeper issues as it relates to the the, the importance of modernizing. Um, but clearly our, our view is that every child, every teacher, every administrator ought to be walking into a school um, that's safe and healthy. And, and the, the, the reality is even with all the federal funding that's come through over the last three years, that's still not the case. Right. So I'm sensing a lot of parallels and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sensing a lot of parallels. The three of us have been active in advocacy on, on energy efficiency and green in Washington, you know, between the three of us, it's like 75 years of experience, but is there a parallel between the, you know, the, the early on energy efficiency with the early on green building and now the early on emphasis on, on health and well-being? I, I sense a, a synergy between the three sort of, you know, starting with energy efficiency, moving on to there's more than just that. It's it's green and now it's it's more holistic. It's more uh, endemic in the environment of of buildings. In that, you know, it's it's about health and well being with all of those things combined. Am I am I am I correct in saying that? Well, look, the you know, there's a lot of us over here that say we're standing on the shoulders of giants. The work of the energy efficiency community right. dating back to the very early 70s. Uh, they've been such a great force for for policy, but also on the implementation side. Um, you know, again, having having run an energy efficiency national energy efficiency organization, we used to note that, um, according to research, energy efficiency had had saved the economy um, over a trillion dollars. So we have been as a as a country, we've been super successful in in driving energy efficiency across across the country whether it's in buildings whether it's in appliances um you know uh, and and across the whether it's in our transportation and our and our um you know our cars and automobiles so that has been a huge success story and i think it 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 again you're like you said it it, it then went, from the building standpoint it went into green building being a little bit more holistic about the environmental impacts of a building beyond just the energy impact right. Um, and then now on the, on the health side, and I, I love that because because it, it it's made sometimes the the policy conversation maybe a little bit more complicated, um, but it's made it more sophisticated because what I see happening is a great convergence ar around kind of the values that we want to see reflected in our buildings. No question. I mean, the 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 ultimate you know line on all this is is that you know. Planetary health and human health go hand in hand. Absolutely. Right. Our, our policies need to reflect that. Our implementation in what we do in a building, when we build a building, when we operate a building, need to reflect that. And so I, I think we are seeing this convergence where, where, you know, the sustainable building practices are being done, the healthy building practices are being done, um, and even the, the climate resilience practices are being done together. And that's, I think, super, super important. And now we're starting to see. I think again, I, you you kind of hit it on the on the head, John, that we're we're seeing that also reflected in how policymakers, decision makers across the board, whether you're a school superintendent, right. or you're a member of Congress, um, how they think about those policy outcomes to reflect that. Yeah, whether it's the intersection of of 
you know, business and policy or, or health and well-being or energy efficiency or green, the goal is the same thing. Right. And it's interesting how much that, you know, I think health and kind of, you know, in the environment work together. I'm mean, thinking about like the products that, you know, our sponsor, Sonfi, creates automated shading, which obviously being able to allow daylight, but also reduce solar glare. Not only does that save energy if you do it the right way, but also increases occupant health and comfort. That's right. Daylighting is good for productivity. So, you know, I think there are some of those connections. One of the things I, I did want to... Oh, Andrew, quick, just a quick comment on that, because it's, it's, I think it's such a great, it's a great point. The, that, that convergence of, of solutions is, has really been um, spurred by, I think, a lot of, of business innovation. And something's a great example. You know, you've got all these companies that are in tens of thousands of buildings, and they've they put these dots together a long time ago. They know that when you're doing energy efficiency in a building, that there are opportunities to also improve indoor environmental quality. Something's a great example because on the on the healthy building side, yes, they are a huge um, example of of ways that we can save energy and and you know very established. Uh, 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 types of, of benefits on that side of it, right. but then they're also um, contributing to improved indoor air quality. They're they're contributing to lighting that is better for human health. That's going to help our um, you know our biorhythms and actually help improve sleep for for people inside those buildings. A huge one. They're helping in terms of thermal comfort. You know, thermal comfort is such an important thing for productivity, right? If you want people to be more productive inside those buildings and they're uncomfortable for whatever reason, and particularly it's usually because they're either too hot or too cold. That's right. Um, makes a big difference. So again, you know, industry and 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 leaders like something and others, I think, have seen this a long time coming and have baked it into their how they um, deploy their products. Yeah, it's it. When we our first episode, we had Russ Carnahan and and you know who started the High Performance Building Caucus in Congress, and he he said the 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 ideal situation, and and you know I think the three of us are, are right with him on this, but the ideal situation is business leading policy following, right, and so that's that's when you know that 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 the the speed of government is is correct that the business community did X Y Z, and the policy follows right behind it. That's that's fantastic. So adding in something else, like, you know, we've we've been, the three of us live in the D.C. area, and <clears throat> so we've been spending our entire summer breathing Canada's wildfire smoke. Yeah. Um, you know, adding in an additional sort of consideration to this. Talk to us about, you know, that aspect of, of public health and, and in buildings and how that affects things like resiliency policy. Yeah, great question, and and a little bit of a you know a, a dichotomy in terms of how we were thinking about buildings during the pandemic, right? right. You know, you go into the building and you know six feet apart and all these these things, um, and now you're and you're when the wildfire smoke came down from Canada, um, you know, folks were, you know, there there was a question of of how safe it was inside your building. Right, because right? the, the smoke was coming in and potentially staying in if there was if there was a lack of ventilation, and it turns out that that some of the the, the most high performing buildings in regard to both sustainability and health, um, this is where kind of that that lead and well combo came in. Those probably were the safest buildings to be in 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 the country, right? Um, because they were focused on you know proper ventilation rates um, plus uh, proper filtration. To make sure that you weren't breathing in in that smoke. So I wrote so a piece, good building science equals a resilient building. Equals a resilient building. I mean, the, the, the climate, climate resilience, and health are almost like strands of DNA. They're right. they're interconnected. And but but when you think about climate change, I think people think intuitively. Okay, that means decarbonization only. And buildings. Look, the buildings. I think the, the, one of the things that the three of us can be really proud of is that buildings have jumped into the deep end of the pool as it relates to decarbonization. Right. I think that's a that's a, a, a product, not just us three, obviously, but of so many of these groups that have said buildings have to lead, the Rick Fedrizis of the world who started the U.S. Green Building Council and said, wait a second, buildings need to be a leader as it relates to environment and climate change. And, and that has happened. And I don't know if there are, if there's a pocket of the world where folks aren't thinking about how their building can lead on decarbonization. 
But climate change also demands healthier buildings because we look at these impacts. Again, the, the, the wildfire smoke is a great example. Extreme heat is a huge example of what does it mean for a building to protect human health, to enhance and promote human health in the context of, you know, um, you know, in Phoenix this past summer, they had a whole month where the average temperature, not the highs, but the average temperature was over 100 degrees. Right, right. That, that gets you in a situation, just to give you a kind of, to, um, to kind of sharpen the lens on this point, that gets you in a situation for, particularly for certain vulnerable populations where thermal comfort becomes an issue of thermal security. Right. You know, it, it's a, it's a, it could be a, a situation of life and death for people. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and, I was and the reason we are colleagues in France last year, uh, in the French Alps, where they don't have heat, you know air conditioning, for instance, uh, they've never had a need to it, and the temperature was 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Like right. it's, it's it's a new world, it's a new, <laughs> literally, literally. Yeah. And, uh, and the, the last point on that is that the reason we talk about climate resilience, and again, I think you think of harder infrastructure, you think of maybe some of the green infrastructure solutions, you think of you know elevating homes along the, um, the the seashores and stuff like that. But the, the whole the purpose of all that is is to protect the people inside those buildings. That's right. And again, it's a it, it's it's a again a, an interdependent strand, and it it really calls attention to how we think about healthy buildings, what's going on inside that building in the context of the impacts of an already changing climate. I don't think any of us can um, pick up a newspaper now just on a almost a regular basis, whether it's a every week or every day where some impact is is affecting you know jeopardizing people's lives um, and certainly putting us in danger absolutely and you know one of the things and you touched upon this a bit also is you know we know the reality is that there is some inequity right even in the green building sphere and certainly in terms of healthy buildings that there are communities and places that don't have access to the same kinds of design technology building performance and, and there is you know a great some great deal of inequity and I, I imagine that's something that i'm assuming correct me if i'm wrong but we see that also in terms of healthy buildings um it's something that you know i'd imagine that you know well it, and like all of us were looking at is how do we make sure that everybody regardless of your socioeconomic status where you live has access to the kind of the healthiest environment possible Absolutely. And it is a big issue for us. Um, one that I think we've been able to do some really creative things to make sure that um, collaborative things to make sure that, that healthy building strategies are reaching uh, folks that are often the most vulnerable. Um, you know, four years ago now, it's shocking to say four years ago, because it's been that long, but four years ago, we, um, we, struck a partnership with the Enterprise Community Partners. They're probably the, the, the nation's leading organization focused on helping support affordable housing and all the various issues. Yeah, the 800 pound gorilla in that community. Yeah, they're just, they're, they're just a, such a powerhouse in that space. But one of the things that they've done very successfully is launch a, and I think they did it at Greenville that I was at. I can't remember if it was 2012 or 2011, um, but they launched a, a green building programs analogous to lead called green communities yeah. that was focused just on affordable housing. Green communities has become the, the de facto standard green standard for affordable housing in the United States. It's incentivized by 27 state housing authorities across the country. Um, it's baked into other local policies that that's the system that, that affordable housing, particularly affordable housing with public um, funding needs to do, sometimes required, sometimes incentivized. And what we decided to do is said, hey, look, this is a priority sector. We want to make sure that as much of what we've learned um, from the building sciences and the health sciences that is baked into lead, uh, baked into well, shows up in green communities. And so in 2019, we, we engaged in this effort. It was a multi-year effort. But when they launched Green Communities 2020, in effect, um, we were able to, to, to get well features into that program such that all future pro Green Communities 2020 projects will be dual certified to well. Oh, and we are super right. excited about some of the first projects have just come online, uh, certified projects. And so we're starting to see the fruits of, of that partnership. Um, but moving forward, 
those projects are green and sustainable and healthy. And that's a big, big deal. Um, and again, it's, it's an opportunity to, to replicate that type of collaboration um, in other parts of the world. Amazing. So Andrew and I were talking earlier a little bit <clears throat> sort of, you know, about the rollout of things like the Inflation Reduction Act's uh, policy and funding and the Infrastructure Act's policy and funding. Talk to us a little bit about how, you know, you interacted with with those two uh, policy touch points and, and what it meant to something like the Well-Building Institute and, and how some of your policies were able to sort of influence influence that legislation. Again, this is what we got. We got thrown into so much federal policy. Yeah. Uh, and, and really what a what a exciting moment to be, you know, in advocacy because the the policies were just like, you know, happening fast and furious left and right. I think, you know, we all had a little whiplash on how, you know, how quickly things were going. And, and it it also shows, I don't know if this was the case for you all, but it was the case for me, is that, you know, you plant these seeds and ideas, policy ideas that, you know, in the moment, somebody may tell you that has no chance ever getting through. Um, but you you continue to cultivate, you continue to kind of invest in those policy ideas and then these moments break. And I think, uh, you know, just, just in terms of deja vu, when I was at the U.S. Green Building Council and President Obama passed ARA, right. uh, where there was historic, I mean, I'm, one of the things that I'm proud about is there was historic $100, billion, 100 plus billion dollars of investment in green building in ARA. Right. And a lot of those policies were picked up um, from ideas that, that that we had supported, that other members of Congress had put forward, that a lot of people told us would never go anywhere. And then all of a sudden, you know, they were they were part of, of that package. And I think the same is true of, um, you know, President Biden's essentially uh, COVID package, definitely part of the Bi uh, Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, and absolutely showed up in um, the Inflation Reduction Act. And so it's, it, I think, it leaned much stronger on the sustainable building side because that was the focus. Uh, you know, I, IRA was IRA was really more of a uh, of a decarbonization bill. Right. Um, but there were were certain things that that I think were really big deals for healthy buildings. One of which was a, a grant program in the infrastructure bill specific to schools, and a lot of my colleagues at DOE kind of made sure that that program, while um, advancing energy efficiency first and foremost also included opportunities to advance uh, healthy indoor environments, advance climate resilience, and be equitable in terms of how that funding uh, would go to school districts. And so now for the next five years, uh, a tranche of $100 million is going out to school districts to do just that. Again, referencing the kind of that convergence of leveraging those, those public funds for Th those values that we 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 all hold dear. Yeah, that was uh, huge. It was huge. There was a ton of money that went to schools. Um, you know, in the in the Biden COVID bill, there was a lot of money that that went to um, the built environment and in, in IRA. And again, we're seeing I think how that plays out for indoor environmental quality. Um, the the big one, interestingly enough. That I'm that I'm most excited about, and, and it's it definitely is more of an energy efficiency win in 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 terms of how it's been articulated and and uh, kind of evolved over the years. But it's it's an energy efficiency uh, incentive specific to commercial buildings, um, 179D for the folks who've been around this. For a <laughs> like you almost wish you never knew what it was actually designated in the law, but 179D. Um, and again, I've been saying that acronym in 25C and 45L yeah, for right, all right, right. my entire yeah. career. Yeah, exactly. right? We've seen that on the, you know, so the residential and the, the commercial, but those were made permanent. And, um, and it's interesting to see how the market has uh, the end, the building end users are starting to utilize that again, to make these energy efficiency gains, but also find these synergies uh, on, on the healthy building side. And, um, and I think that's starting to take off. And my hope is, is that more of that synergy will, will, will show up in implementation. It's not required, 
Um, it really is the the uh, the thresholds are all energy related, um, but but we are seeing market leaders make sure that they they uh, take advantage of of both opportunities because there are so many synergies between energy efficiency and and healthy and environmental quality. Um, there it is. Yeah. I, and I don't know if you want to talk about EPBD, John, but there there is a I think the the EU is kind of taking it even a step further yeah. by taking in IAQ into um, you know their building directive specific to energy um, to make sure that to kind of elevate healthy buildings and and the the importance of healthy buildings in the context of energy savings. Well, you make an excellent point, and my colleagues uh, in Europe who work for Sophie in public affairs have been working on that particular issue now, going on almost a decade. So the fact that it's finally making it into the, you know, the energy performance database for, for the EU's sort of energy efficiency calculations, it's, it's like a, a watershed moment for that, for that movement. It's, it's, it's really interesting to watch. It is, it, it, and I think that's a perfect word. It is a watershed moment um, where, where these things too, it's like peanut butter and jelly, they're better together. Um, and you know, now they're making sure that it's advanced together. Article 11A is so super important that there is an article titled indoor air quality. That's right. Um, or actually rather indoor environmental, environmental quality. quality. Right. Um, so we kind of zoomed out a little bit more. So th those are those are great advancements. And I think um, in the policy space that we should, you know, we should all shine a light on and we should recognize and we should applaud. Agreed. Agreed. Well, listen, man, this has been amazing, and we can't thank you enough both for taking the time today to chat with us and for your yeoman's effort on all of these things that have basically affected our lives, both as, as industry and as specifically as advocates. It's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. No, it's great. I mean, there's really is such a moment now, I think, when healthy buildings have come to the forefront. And, you know, the Little Building Institute has played such a central role in that and a, a leadership yeah, role. Yeah, right place, right time. Yeah. Fantastic. And thank you to you, you both, um, and the work you do. Um, I appreciate being on with you. I love this conversation. And, um, you know, part of what we remember is, is who we were on the journey with. And so, you know, being side by side with you both in, in these advocacy battles has meant the world to me. So it's, it's, it's great to be, uh, you know, sharing some of this with you on the, on the podcast. Terrific. Well, thanks, man. Uh, we'd like to have you back on in a couple months to follow up on, on a couple of things we discussed and, uh, you know, enjoy uh, August in our lovely nation's capital. <laughs> Thank you much. All right. We'll talk thanks, to you soon. Thanks, Jason. Thank you so much. Bye, folks. Well, that was amazing. That, that was great. Yeah. yeah. I felt like I was reading my resume for the past 25 years. <laughs> History of of. of, of Grid buildings, yeah, and it's so. I mean, there's so much connections between you know climate uh, and how buildings are impacted by it, and impact climate, and health is just right in the middle of that. It is so important. Truly, truly, and so we can't thank Jason enough for being with us today, and we can't thank you for listening in to the Political Shadings podcast. We survived another episode. Yes, we did. Three down. Yeah, <laughs> where we discuss the intersection of the green economy and politics, a little bit of energy efficiency, a little bit of green building, and uh, some common sense on occasion. Well, let's hope. Hopefully. I'm John Lawyer. I'm Andrew Goldberg. And we'll be back to you next month with another episode of Political Shadings. In the meantime, stay safe, stay cool, and stay well. Thanks a lot.